this is it. Over the last 19 episodes that we have been strictly talking about the history of Arizona, first in the hands of the Amerindians, then the Spanish, and finally the Mexicans, you may have asked yourself, okay, but when will the U.S. come into the picture? Wonder no longer, because by the end of today, the northern portion of the future 48th state will be given away to the Norteamericanos, with the southern part coming along shortly. But to get there, first we have to wrap up the end of the Mexican-American War, and then take a look at the back and forth about where to draw the line between the conflict's victor and its loser, which will only set the stage for more conflicts to come. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 22, The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. For the Mormon battalion, the march across Arizona had been difficult, but given the fact that there was a full-scale war on, relatively conflict-free. They, and Kearney's men before them, had managed to skirt this northern section of Mexico without any real problems. Down south, however, was another matter. So what I want to do in this episode is rewind the clock a little bit to talk about the machinations happening in Mexico City, then move into what the war years were like for those living in what will soon be known as Arizona. Finally, we'll close the book on this war, which was over a little more than a year after it was declared. Starting with that first point, we have to once again talk about everyone's favorite sometimes president, sometimes pariah, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. I'm almost a little sad that we are leaving Mexican history behind because it means this will be our last ride on the Santa Ana merry-go-round. The consummate political manipulator who always managed to pull off some daring feat or convince others that this time, really, he was on their side, managed to once again insert himself in Mexican national affairs. How? Well, for that, we have to rewind back to the middle of 1846. You might remember from two episodes back that the moderate president of Mexico, José Joaquín Herrera, had been unseated in a coup at the end of 1845. In his place came the general Mariano Paredes y Arriaga. Now, Paredes y Arriaga is actually a monarchist. Hey, remember those? But the nation was in no mood to accept his radical notion that Mexico needed a king to prosper again. Immediately, the liberals were ready to dump him. And the head of the liberals was none other than Valentin Gomez Ferrias, who had been Santa Ana's vice president back in the early 1830s. Remember him? He was the guy Santa Ana had left in charge and then actually deposed when his liberal programs became unpopular enough. We covered that back in episode 18. Gomez Ferrias hated Paredes y Arriaga, enough that he was willing to again shake hands with the devil. And so he began corresponding regularly with Santa Ana. The former president had been exiled from Mexico in 1845 and was, in the words of one historian, quote, presently devoting himself to banquets and cockfights in Cuba, end quote. He was also, I might add, 
secretly in talks with the Americans to return to power in exchange for $30 million and giving away most of the Mexican territory that the U.S. wanted. The rebellion against Paredes y Arriaga kicked off in July 1846, and soon Gomez Farias had reestablished the Federalist Constitution of 1824. By August, so just as Kearney is entering Santa Fe, Santa Ana arrived at Veracruz, apparently with the tacit permission of the American naval blockade. On September 16th, Mexican Independence Day, Santa Ana and Gomez Farias entered Mexico City. Two weeks later, he was proclaimed president and immediately went north with 3,000 troops. Gomez Farias became vice president. We're going to leave the happy pair there for now, in their moment of triumph, since said moment of triumph will ultimately prove fleeting. Up in Tucson, life started to return to some semblance of normal following the invasion of the Mormon battalion. With Colonel Jose Maria Elias Gonzalez and his forces now in Tucson, Father Trinidad Garcia Rojas was able to again ride north to administer sacraments to those at San Javier del Bac and to Macacri in February 1847. The major news these days, however, was the overthrow of Paredes y Arriaga and the return of the Constitution of 1824. In January 1847, Sonoran state officials met at the capital of Ures to appoint an interim governor as part of this return to federalism. Their choice was Luis Redondo, who hailed from a prominent family from the Altar Valley, which stretches from northwestern Sonora into Arizona, crossing the international border around the town of Sassabee and heading up the route of State Route 286. It should also be noted that Redondo, through his mother's family, was related to none other than Manuel Maria Gandara. Everyone's hackles were understandably up from the fact that an American occupying force had so recently taken Tucson. That's why, after word reached them that the Americans had begun an invasion of neighboring Chihuahua, Redondo was given emergency powers on February 18, 1847. Redondo tapped Elias Gonzalez to lead all efforts to protect Sonora from any and all invasions. Elias Gonzalez who really has been the military man everyone has turned to for a couple decades now, started organizing regular and auxiliary forces to resist potential American advances. Then, in April, word came of everyone's worst nightmare. The Americans had joined with the Apaches to attack Sonora. A communication had come in from the municipal president of Arispe that a combined force of Americans and Apaches were even now on the outskirts of Fronteras, ready to strike. Elias Gonzalez quickly informed Redondo that he was on it, taking the 300 men with him to protect the city. Of course, the times being what they were, Elias Gonzalez also passed along that his force was lacking in guns, ammunition, and horses. The men, he wrote only could fall back on their courage and their patriotism. By April 30th, Elias Gonzalez and his men were in Fronteras waiting for the worst, which never came. From what he could determine, there were some Apaches in the area, but definitely no invading American force. He learned that the municipal president in Arispe had gotten his exaggerated report from a couple of mule drivers that had passed through town, 
At least Gonzalez tracked these two down to get a straight answer, but what he got was a completely different story that did not include any sort of invading Americans. But hey, at least everyone was good and awake now, right? Redondo would step down as interim governor in May 1847. And the newly elected governor who would take his place was none other than Manuel Maria Gandara. That's right, we are back to this. Except things are different now. José Cosme de Urrea, called the fight in the war, was not around to cause a fuss. After years of swinging back and forth between duly recognized governor and conniving jackal, Gandara was squarely in power. And this time, he, or men closely tied to him, would hold that power for almost a decade. Gandara, probably after first checking underneath the bed just to make sure that the boogeyman Urea wasn't going to pop up and eat him, turned his attention to the problems of the day. Aside from the invading Americans and the never-ending pressure from the Apache, he also had to deal with a rise in banditry across Sonora. Particularly troublesome was a highwayman named Pedro Espinosa, who went by the bandit name of El Chivero, or the Mountain Lion. Leading a small gang of three Yaqui Indians, El Chivero would be a pain for months. In August 1847, Gandra put out a notice calling for the immediate arrest of all the leaders of these bandit gangs and their allies. In September, a small posse was able to capture El Chivero, who would wind up being shot by a prison guard a short time later. While the governor was putting out the call against bandits, life had returned to a semblance of normality up in the Santa Cruz Valley. This is when we see another visit of Father Rojas again to Tumacacri, San Javier del Bac, and Tucson in August 1847, baptizing children and offering other sacraments. But probably the best evidence of things getting back to normal is we see Captain Comodoron at Tucson preparing to sally forth once again against the Apaches. For months now, the chief of the Pinal Apaches had been sending signals about wanting peace with the Presidio. However, that message was negated by the fact that he kept sending regular raiding parties against both Tucson and San Javier del Bac. Getting tired of this, Comodoran sent a message that either the Apaches surrender, or they would be punished. When he received no response to this ultimatum, the captain took to the field. On September 10th, 1847, Comodoran and 210 men an impressive sides given the war and the total poverty of the Mexican army, rode out from Tucson. Included in this task force were 15 soldiers from the Presidio at Santa Cruz, 17 from Tubac, 45 from Tucson, plus Mexican auxiliaries and Odom and Apache Manso troops. It's possible some of these troops had come north with Elias Gonzalez at the end of 1846 and had been left there to keep Tucson well protected. On September 14th, this small force marched into Aravaipa Canyon, which I believe I've been mistakenly pronouncing as Aravapai Canyon in previous episodes, so I apologize. In this canyon, they found the Pinal Apache. Unlike how these things usually went down, the battle turned out to be a success for the Mexicans. Comodoran would report 16 warriors, 7 women, and 4 boys killed, while 14 Apaches were captured. 
The force was also able to recover 30 horses and 8 head of cattle the Apaches had with them. The remainder of the Apaches that fled began immediately to send peace feelers to Komodoran again, but when he invited them to come for talks, no one took him up on the offer. Despite the false scare earlier in the year, in October 1847, the only real American occupation of Sonora began. On October 16th, three American vessels anchored off the port of Guaymas and demanded the city's unconditional surrender. The Mexicans, of course, refused, and then the Americans, of course, opened fire. The Mexican leaders quickly became convinced that they couldn't stand up to such a bombardment and withdrew outside the city. The Americans came in, set up shop, and would not leave until June 1848. Now, James Officer, in his book Hispanic Arizona, makes mention that most standard histories of Arizona during the Mexican-American War note the expeditions of Kearney and Cook. However, there is a possibility that there was a third expedition that has been mostly overlooked. As Officer relates, a June 15, 1889 article in the Arizona Weekly Citizen, a Tucson newspaper, suggests there was another American foray into the Santa Cruz Valley. The article reports the visit of a Judge F. Adams from California, who told the reporter he had been in the area of Tucson in November 1847 as part of a company of soldiers carrying dispatches to General Kearney in California. Adams, according to Officer, lays out a story that his force actually tried to take Tucson, but was unable to, so they basically put the whole community under siege. The siege was only lifted after another small contingent arrives with new orders to return to Fort Bliss in El Paso. The account also mentions the killing of several Apache near Tucson, San Javier, and a place called La Canoa. Officer points out that if this account is true, it is likely the soldiers had killed Apache Mansos at their long-established camps rather than actual hostile Apaches. He also says that had this expedition ridden further south, they probably would have attacked Tubac, which was primarily an Apache Monso community at this point. Officer is the only source I have that mentions this incident, so feel free to take any of what I just said with a grain of salt. But if true, it's a tantalizing glimpse that maybe more Norte Americanos than we originally thought caught a glimpse of the future 48th state. Of course, it didn't really matter if the Norte Americanos were trying to invade Arizona, because they were having so much more success invading other parts of Mexico. For all the factors we talked about last episode, Mexico didn't stand much of a chance of repelling the Americans once they set their mind to invading. It didn't help much that Gomez Farias, left in charge of Mexico City, decided not to learn anything from his last go-around in the office. At the heart of all his problems was the question of money. Remember, nothing has really changed here. Mexico is still virtually bankrupt. Gomez Farias, an outspoken liberal, decided that his best target to drum up more funds was the Catholic Church. The vice president had always been hostile toward the church. This attitude was part of what got him overthrown back in the 1830s. So, when he needed to drum up more money quickly, churches and cathedrals became targets that were too tempting to ignore. 
In January 1847, Gomez Farias had the National Congress authorize mortgaging and selling church property to raise 15 million pesos. As expected, the church raised all sorts of protest over this plan, with churches even shutting down in protest. The ones that didn't close were now filled with anti-government sermons. And it soon became apparent that the clergy weren't the only ones not digging the new plan. People were now throwing rocks at the National Palace. Leaflets soon hit the streets calling for the end of the government and the end of Gomez Farias himself, if you catch my drift. The Mexican states around the capital decried the measure, saying it hurt not only the church, but everyone. Rumors even began to fly around that some of the states north of Mexico City might declare their independence and, get this, apply to the U.S. for protection. Things really come to a head in late February 1847, when Gomez Farias sent marching orders to a conservative military battalion known as Los Pocos, because of their love of dancing the polka. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up. The orders were to head to Veracruz to prepare for an American invasion. However, Los Polcos decided to denounce Gomez Frias instead and kicked off a rebellion in Mexico City that bordered on civil war. No one really comes off great in this affair, as people pointed out that a looming American invasion is no time to start off this kind of infighting. So, in March 1847, we get a replay of April 1834. With everyone fed up again with Gomez Farias, the people called upon Santa Ana again to come and save the situation. The general rode back into Mexico City and denounced his vice president. Again. But instead of simply ousting him and picking a new toady, Santa Ana had Congress actually abolish the office of vice president. He also managed to get the Catholic Church to lend 1.5 million pesos in exchange for nullifying all those forced mortgages. All in all, not a terrible way to put down the problem. Too bad none of it was coupled with success in the field. You see, while Gomez Farias had been busy pouring gasoline on all the bridges he was burning, Santa Ana had led a humiliating campaign against the Americans. He had managed to cobble together a force of some 20,000 men at San Luis Potosi to march north and meet American forces advancing south from Texas. To his credit, Santa Ana actually mortgaged his own properties and put personal resources on the table for this fighting force. But it was still nowhere near enough to get uniforms, enough food, firearms, or ammunition. The force didn't have any artillery or long-range rifles, which meant close-quarters fighting is really all it could do. 5,000 men from this force would die from exposure, starvation, thirst, and exhaustion before meeting the Americans at Saltillo near Monterey, Mexico on February 22, 1847. Despite outnumbering the army of General Zachary Taylor 3-1, to one, Santa Ana was losing men much quicker, as the Americans had both artillery and long-range rifles. After two days of bloody battle, Santa Ana was persuaded that the troops did not have enough food for another go at it, so he turned around. This retreat would take another massive toll on his army, and he arrived back at San Luis Potosi with less than half of the 20,000 men he started out with. And at this point, U.S. President James K. Polk decided he was done messing around. 
General Winfield Scott was given the green light to invade Mexico via Veracruz. Scott's force of 12,000 landed south of Veracruz on March 5th. By March 29th, he had captured the city and was moving his forces inland. The fun historical side note to this is that Scott's route was basically the same as Hernán Cortés from some three centuries earlier. He would be met at a place called Cerro Gordo by another force raised by Santa Ana. American firepower and Mexican demoralization again proved critical, and the Battle of Cerro Gordo was a complete rout. More than 3,000 prisoners were taken. Santa Ana was forced to flee on foot, and what little cash he had for the army's payroll was now in the hands of the Americans. Wary of guerrilla fighting that would drag things out, Scott is going to pause and spend several months planning the eventual siege of Mexico City. During this time, Polk was already sending out peace feelers through diplomat Nicholas Trist, who spoke Spanish and had a fairly impressive resume, including having studied law under Thomas Jefferson, served as the private secretary to Andrew Jackson, and been the former U.S. consul to Cuba. He was even married to Jefferson's granddaughter. And it's here that we see the first glimpses of what post-war Mexico might have looked like. The Mexican commissioners, including former President José Joaquín Herrera, were trying to make as few concessions as possible, though American occupation of strategic locations such as San Francisco and San Diego made that incredibly hard. However, both sides were handicapped by the fact that no one really had a good idea about the geography or topography of the far Mexican frontier, so what we get is a series of proposals based on lines of latitude that concerned themselves very little with what might actually be out there. Knowing that Trist and Polk really, really wanted San Francisco, one proposal was at 37 degrees latitude, just south of the bay and ran east until it eventually hit the Colorado River. A second one was for 36 degrees 30 minutes latitude, which just basically moved that line south enough to include the bay at Monterey, California in the package. An ambitious American proposal was for 26 degrees latitude, basically the latitude of the mouth of the Rio Grande River, which would have granted Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo Leon, and most of Baja California to the Americans. The Mexicans tried to keep New Mexico and San Diego, arguing that they were already settled by a good number of their countrymen who did not wish to join the United States and that the Mexican federal government couldn't just give away whole parts of a sovereign state. Of course, any negotiations became much harder for Mexico in mid-September 1847, when Scott took Mexico City. Santa Ana had tried to negotiate an end to the war himself before this siege, but he made virtually no concessions to the Americans and still insisted on Texas ending at the Nueces River, so this went nowhere. And here we will, regrettably, say goodbye to Santa Ana, who resigned the presidency and fled to South America. In a way, it's a little sad to see him go out like this, but in another way, it's entirely fitting. Happy trails, Santa Ana. We'll see you in the history books. From here on out, Mexico was split on what it needed to do. The aristocracy was still riddled with factions, some of which cried that they needed, capital N, needed, 
a monarch from Europe to come and rule Mexico. Others insisted that negotiations were the only way to keep one shred of Mexican pride intact. Still others insisted that it was time to have the whole nation rise up in guerrilla attacks to drive off the invaders. Meanwhile, some voices in the United States were saying that the country should take this whole manifest destiny shtick southward and just annex the whole of Mexico. Trist was actually one of these voices, becoming wrapped up in the notion that of course the majority of Mexicans wanted to become part of the United States. Who wouldn't? Others, however, were starting to raise concerns about what would happen to their neat white republic if they were to let all those Mexicans in. Newspaper editorials of the time were speaking of Mexicans in the same patronizing, derogatory, and outright racist terms as they did the Amerindians. Finally, though, Mexico pulled itself together enough to elect a president who commissioned a group to meet with Trist and negotiate peace with the United States. Funny enough, Trist was technically not empowered to speak for the U.S. at this point. You see, the diplomat had sent a preliminary version of a treaty to Washington, but that document had drawn the boundary at 33 degrees latitude, which let the Mexicans keep San Diego and still had Texas ending at the Nueces River. And if we've learned one thing, is that anything involving the Nueces River was out of the question. President James K. Polk rejected this treaty out of hand and wrote to Trist in October 1847 to let him know that his services were no longer required and to return to Washington immediately. But it took weeks for news of this recall to reach Trist, and by that time he knew that the new, more moderate government in Mexico was more likely to play ball with American demands. So he conveniently uh, forgot to read these orders and kept right on negotiating. Polk was furious, but when Trist came back with a treaty in hand to end the war, and one very favorable to the U.S. at that, there was little he could do about it. In January 1848, negotiations over the document's language began in earnest. The resulting treaty of peace friendship, limits, and settlement between the United States of America and the Mexican Republic gave the U.S. pretty much everything it wanted. According to the terms of the treaty, the U.S. would pay Mexico $15 million for all of its northern territory, some $10 million less than it had offered to pay before the start of the war. The U.S. also agreed to assume more than $3 million in claims from U.S. citizens against Mexico. In Article 5 of the treaty, the actual boundary between the two nations was set. It would follow the Rio Grande up from the Gulf of Mexico to the boundary of New Mexico. From there, it would run west to the Gila River, then follow the Gila to its confluence with the Colorado, thus leaving Tucson, Tubac, and Tumacacri still inside Mexico. Finally, the boundary would strike west at 32 degrees latitude, hitting the Pacific Ocean just south of San Diego. A joint commission of U.S. and Mexican delegates were to meet no more than a year after the treaty's ratification to fully map and demarcate the boundary line. As with most things in life, this was easier said than done. First and foremost, no one really had a good understanding of where New Mexico ended and the other Mexican states began. The treaty said that it started north of Paso, today El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, but gave no further indications than that. 
Secondly, the treaty approved two maps to use as guidelines. The first was an 1847 map of the states of Mexico. The second was actually a 1782 map of San Diego Harbor. Confusion and errors in these maps will make the resulting boundary decisions a huge headache for future commissioners. And then there was the issue of actually enforcing sovereignty on this new boundary. Mexico was in no shape to do, well, anything, and no one running the U.S. really knew anything about the territory they had just acquired. The treaty also called for the Boundary Commission to open relations with Amerindian tribes, collect scientific data, and do further exploration of this region. And if you think the natives are just going to abide by this arbitrary line that a bunch of invaders sat down and hammered out one day, well, you definitely need to listen to the rest of this podcast. In the end, the treaty gave the U.S. some 525,000 square miles of land, roughly 55% of all the land Mexico claimed up to that point. True, it was sparsely settled and no one really had an idea what large swaths of it looked like, but from the standpoint of Mexican pride, the country had been basically cut in half. Then there was the fact that there were roughly 100,000 Mexican citizens living in the territory just handed over to the U.S. These were given three options. A. Move to Mexico proper and remain Mexican citizens. B. Stay in the new U.S. territory, but keep Mexican citizenship. Or C. Stay in the new U.S. territory and become U.S. citizens. When given this choice, many went with option C, though now many were finding themselves ethnic minorities in their own homelands, as Norte Americanos swooped in, especially in California following the discovery of gold. What's worse is their land rights were often ambiguous and not well documented. The U.S. would reject an article in the treaty that would have automatically legitimized all their titles, so now they had to go to court just to keep what might have been in their family for years. The shoddy, haphazard record-keeping from the Mexican era would often be used by unscrupulous men to either defraud Mexicans or even the U.S. government of large tracts of land in the Southwest. Trust me, I'm itching to tell the tale of James Rivas, the self-proclaimed Baron of Arizona. On February 2nd, the treaty was signed by both parties at the town of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is now a suburb of Mexico City. Ironically for a treaty that gave away so much of Mexico, Guadalupe Hidalgo was the traditional site for the appearance of the Virgin of Guadalupe in 1531, and the treaty was signed near the shrine to Mexico's patron saint. Also, the town had been officially chartered in 1828, at which point Hidalgo had been appended to its name, coming, of course, from Father Hidalgo, who had kicked off Mexican independence just a short 37 years beforehand. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was now sent to the Congress of both countries for debate. Like I said, Polk was furious with Trist for failing to come home when recalled, but the treaty had basically given him everything he wanted, so there was no way he could denounce it. Congress would debate it, and this is when they stripped away that inconvenient provision recognizing Mexican land titles, before finally ratifying the treaty on March 10th. It was then sent to the Mexican Congress, which approved the amended version on March 30th. The treaty was proclaimed by both sides on July 4th, 1848. The Mexican-American War 
was now officially over. And so is today's episode. But join me next week when we will talk about the years immediately following the end of hostilities and watch as Tucson and other Mexican settlements deal with the fallout from the war. They will also brace themselves as their once isolated spot of desert is flooded by all those gold seekers just trying to get to California. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.